0: The UFC's gone through a weird year, right? It's heavyweight champion left and went to boxing with Ngannou, then one of their biggest stars ever in John Jones came back, but he got injured for a long time and now Tom Aspinall is their third champion within 11 months at heavyweight. And now there's a the question of John Jones will even come back because, well, a lot of people think he just wanted to fight Stipe so he could have that greatest heavyweight champion in his win column. I have no idea if that's what's going to happen, but it's a perfect example of what today's list is about. Champions that for one reason or another show up, take a belt, and kind of take off like what John Jones might be doing. And there are a bunch of reasons for this, so let's just go ahead and get into it. A huge shout out to the biggest supporters of the channel are Hall of Famers, and these are 10 MMA champs who won a title and left. By the way, uh, you're not going to see people on here like GDR or Nico Montano, Josh Burnett, that kind of thing. They didn't actually leave on their own accord and basically got demoted, forcefully stripped, or they were fired altogether type kind of thing. It wasn't their decision, is the point. Today, I'm going over people that actively chose to leave. And on that note, they didn't have any defenses. It was like they grabbed the title and they said, peace, I'm out of here. So with that being said, here's number 10, Eddie Alvarez. So most people are probably going to know Alvarez through his rivalry with Conor, if not his more recent stints in one championship or BKFC. But the guy's nickname for a long time was the Underground King, and for a really good reason. He had fought pretty much everywhere but the UFC. He went to Bodog, Dream, Elite XC, and of course, Bellator. So this is naturally where he won the Bellator title. It's the guy who's a oh third submission win! And then went into his absolutely incredible first fight with Michael Chandler in what was supposed to be his second title defense. Chandler was in the black trunks, then Chandler. Oh, he got him! From the white trunks! He hurt him back! So he He's... let him go out? in
1: all sorts of trouble trying to hold on. A oh, good right hand by Eddie! An amazing round Oh, dropped
0: him again! right hand by Chandler. Looking to finish before the bell. And his back! Chandler, that's it! The choke. There's the top! And we have a new champion! So following that loss, he ended up earning a couple big wins over Shinya Aoki and Patriki Pitbull. And, well, he was right back at Michael Chandler for a huge title rematch. Again, incredible fight. Two of the best title fights in MMA history, regardless of the organization. It deservedly is up there with the best of all time. A phenomenal 25 minutes in the Bellator cage. But yeah, he won and said, you know what? I'm out of here. Time to cash in big time with the UFC while vacating this fresh belt that made his stock go even higher. Not so fast, though. Bellator desperately was trying to book a third fight with Chandler, and this was before the days of Scott Coker, who everyone seems to love. I've never had a bad thing to say about Scott Coker. You know, Scott's a good guy. And Alvarez had been embroiled in a legal battle with then Bellator president Bjorn Rebney. It was that classic type kind of scenario where he was trying to leave his contract, but they kept trying trying to re-up, but he couldn't leave his contract without them offering another fight and they would offer it with the strings attached. Welcome to MMA Contracts, everybody. Oh, you almost had it you are going to be quicker than that. It's going to come to a
1: resolution. We're either going to settle it and he's going to be fighting in the Bellator cage or it's going to go a different route.
0: So it didn't look like he was about to go anywhere. But that's when Bjorn's issues with Bellator's parent company, Viacom, got to be too much and they actually fired him. So out of nowhere, Scott Coker was the man to replace him. You know, now that things
1: under Scott Coker, I feel like things are going to change, you know. Like when I talk to some fighters in Bellator, they're all happy Scott Coker's here. I don't have a, there's not a bad word to be said, but you seem like ready to bury Bjorn Rebny. Is
0: that fair? I personally think he's a bitch. And within just a couple of months, Alvarez was free to go. So yeah, this was his second reign technically, which is definitely why it's my number 10, but he did actually leave Wild champion and without defending. Pair that with how crazy this story is. There is no way it wasn't going to make the list. Number nine, Alistair Overeem. Again, here's another star that if you're a recent fan, you would most likely know from his UFC career, but his best years were definitely before. For one, I mean, just look at him before and after he got to the UFC and failed a couple drug tests. Still, though, he did manage to compete for a UFC title and did have a solid run there. But before he got to the UFC during that initial heavyweight run and bulk up from light heavyweight, I mean, he was kind of doing it all. For one, he earned the inaugural Strike Force Heavyweight Championship in 2007 over Don't Fear Me Paul Buentillo, and strangely left the organization for like three years to compete in Japan and the Netherlands. But that's not the reason he is on this list, because perhaps even more bizarrely was the fact that he was never stripped and all of that time gone.
1: Why didn't I sign a contract for strike force? Because there were no other heavyweights for me to fight there. That is why uh, they allowed me to, as title holder, to fight in uh, in, in Dream. That's why I signed Force got bigger. They bought some heavyweights in, so their heavyweight league uh, expanded.
0: Then there were some new fights for me there. So. Three years later, he finally defended the Strike Force title against Brett Rogers. That was a pretty effortless defense, honestly. But from there, he probably had the best month in combat sports history. So, everybody's well acquainted with the kickboxers coming over to MMA and winning world titles, right? Well, Alistair is one of the OGs with both careers starting in the 90s. So, in this instance, he went over to Japan as the Strike Force heavyweight champion to K1 which was the pinnacle back then of kickboxing and is now owned by Glory. And yeah, the dude won a fucking K-1 championship. Is the
1: champion.
0: So this was on December 11th, 2010, and mind you, he had to fight three times on the same night to earn that title. So if that wasn't a grueling enough schedule already, Only 20 days later, Alistair was suddenly in a heavyweight MMA fight in Dream, also in Japan, against ex UFC star Todd Duffy. I mean, dude was no joke back then, only having lost a single time and had some really great KO power behind him. None of his victims ever made it past the second round when he won. And this is how the fight ended up going down. To be fair, this fight only happened on about a week's notice for Todd Duffy as Dream was really struggling to even find Alistair an opponent for the event. So yeah, Duffy wasn't exactly the most well prepared and what makes this so interesting is that this was the one and only heavyweight title fight in Dream's entire history. Alistair just had one more fight back in Strike Force before leaving to the UFC and Dream never really had much of a heavyweight division anyway so that was it the one and only champion for one night only number eight boss rootin you know his title win as awesome as boss is never really has been remembered well Just today, I've gone back to watch this fight in preparation of making this video. And yeah, he pretty much got taken down instantly and bloodied up within two minutes. And yeah, Boss definitely had a chin on him. But to his credit, after those first five minutes or so, Randleman completely gassed out. And while he was able to secure more takedowns going forward, he wasn't really doing anything once it hit the ground because he was just completely gassed out. I'll say this it's not as much a robbery as I previously thought it to be, especially by today's rules, because they don't really care that much about takedowns with no follow-up damage. In 1999, it predated the unified rules and all they really cared about was damage. This isn't the wrestling favored scoring criteria you saw after this period, and Boss was landing a ton from the bottom.
1: Remember one more time the criteria, aggressiveness, striking,
0: it was just kind of up to the judges, whatever they thought. Either way, he was so injured at this point that the only fight that interested him was a dream matchup with Frank Shamrock, and that didn't happen. His body had just been through too much. My knees were very bothering me, and uh, one of the worst things that I have is tendonitis in both of my arms. And if it hits, it's about a 45-minute hour, a pain which is unimaginable. It's really? like yeah, you have no clue. It's like coming from the outside. It's like he it's. And there's nothing you can do. You can't take pain pills for nothing. Wow. And if the writer, I would lose weight. This is the reason that I stopped because it's not fun anymore. You know, you're on the ground, everything hurts. It's so much pain that, yeah, you lose weight. You can't eat, you know, you get tears in your <laughs> eyes from the pain. It's a shame his career had to end after such a controversial, mired moment, especially considering how legendary his career is overall. But either way, it was one and done. He won that belt and left forever. Number 7. Bibiano Fernandez To say 2011 was a rough year for Japanese MMA might be an understatement. Dream was the immediate successor to Pride after its infamous fall due to its ties with the Yakuza, and while this was owned by the same company that ran Pride and even was able to attract many of its old stars post-sale to the UFC, it just never really reached anywhere near the heights of Pride. So by 2011 the organization was already on its deathbed just 4 years after it began. Assuming you count Yaranoka as dream 1, you know that event that had Fedor fight Hung Man Choi. You
1: know, Those difficult. you see John and, and Fedor hugging in the corner there. A long time.
0: The official Dream one happened in like March of 2008. Either way, December 11th was pretty much the last normal operation for Dream. The following year, they would have a short-lived resurrection for one single event. It was literally for New Year's the following year, but by then it was already pretty much a husk of what it once was, and notably lacked TV distribution in the States. Either way, Bibiano Fernandez, who is one of the most decorated fighters to never fight in the UFC was on this card and was going for his second belt in the organization. By this point, he'd already won the featherweight title, besting solid names of the era like Bellator former champ, Joe Warren, and another dream great in Joachim Hansen. So after losing that title, he set his sights on the Dream Bantamweight Championship a second belt he was up against WEC and UFC vet Antonio Benuelas, and he was able to quickly dispatch of him early in the first with an insane barrage of strikes
1: this is yeah, just violence from Bibiano side control now pounding down on it's over. It's good now.
0: and that was it Dream was all but officially done canceling their events all throughout the next year and laying off their employees. So Bibiano wisely signed with another organization in one and went off to have one of the most impressive runs in the organization's history, Capturing their Bantamweight title on two separate occasions with his longest title defense streak at a staggering seven consecutive defenses. What a machine. Number six, Rafael Lovato Jr. When you watch a moment like this, you see something that on the surface looks familiar. Because of course, we've seen champions from Anderson Silva to GSP cry when they win a title. But when I tell you the circumstances of this win, it is genuinely shocking what Rafael Lovato Jr. went through to win this belt. It started with a simple fight booking in London.
1: You know, uh, that was my 10th fight, fighting for the Bellator title. And uh, in all my other nine fights previously, it was never required for me to get a brain scan done the commissions there didn't require it. In the US, it's California, New York, and then Europe, um, you know, requires a brain scan. And so I go get my brain scan done to get that done um, before I went to Brazil, Curitiba, uh, to get into the, you know, the hardest phase of camp. The radiologists, with really no like candor or, or like like an easy, soft way of saying it was like, dude, uh, have you seen your brain before? And he, you know, pulls me into the room and shows me on the on the screen. He's like, uh, obviously it looked like something was wrong. It didn't look like a normal scam. He's like, well, this doesn't look right and you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. I'm like, okay, so are, are you going to sign this paper? And he's like, no. And he believes that I have a disease called cavernoma.
0: Wow, dude, that's crazy. That is a fucking big ass spot on your brain. And yeah. After this he went to many more doctors and all of them were saying no. No one would sign that paper form. him. So he went for one last doctor. This time from one of the best doctors surrounding this particular diagnosis.
1: We have one more doctor to see who's like the professor of many of the doctors that I already saw. He's very highly regarded and he's like yeah, yeah, this is this is a cavernoma for sure. Um how do you feel? The first one to ask me, how do you feel? I feel great. I'm fine. You know, I don't even get headaches. He's like, let me just see what I can find, but I guarantee I'm not going to find anything that says head impact or trauma is going to increase the risk of your cavernoma bleeding. And he, he literally finds nothing. I think it's fine for you to fight. So you'll write a letter saying this, you'll 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 support me? And he's like, yeah, sure, sure, no problem. Super calm guy.
0: So things were finally starting to look up for him, but in the midst of all this, he'd also suffered a major injury that threatened his ability to compete.
1: I, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have been going as hard as what I've been going. Um, I go for like a double leg. I strain my hamstring bad. My hamstring just snapped. Pop. I can't believe I've come this far to the title shot this much training going from november of 2018 into the end of may of 2019 that was my that was it It was just this fight with Masasi. you know i can't wrestle i can't kick and my last week in brazil you know uh, i'm literally just hitting mitts like this trying to stay positive i still have like a month let's get this healed
0: Somehow though, miraculously, he made it to the fight against one of the best MMA fighters to never win a UFC title, and who left on a win streak from the UFC. I have defeated Jack Ray, I have defeated Mark Hunt, I have defeated Dan Henderson, I have defeated Fito Belfort, I have defeated
1: Whiteman, all these, all these guys I have defeated. They're making more money than me. I'm in the top three, what, what is it, my nationality? Do you want me to dye my hair blonde, what the fuck? Michael Bisping. Let's be honest, I would be favored in that fight.
0: Of course I'm talking about Gegard Mousasi. And the fight itself was fittingly grueling, as if the struggle to get to the fight wasn't already tough enough.
1: Coming at Gegard for Lovato Jr, nice takedown. Good movement, nice strikes by Lovato Jr. This is
0: so just as we watched at the beginning of this century, it's incredibly moving to see this again, knowing everything he went through. And so the reason why he left Bellator and the major issue moving forward is that while he was able to get sanctioned in the UK for this one fight, The whole saga made his cavernoma diagnosis a well known issue with the American commissions, and since then, he's not been able to get booked anywhere in the country. So he had one last fight, and Japan still remaining undefeated. What a story, guys. Wow. Number five, BJ Penn. Over the years, not many people have been able to get away with a contract from the UFC. GSP tried to in 2016 after repeated negotiation fails. Well, right now, I'm free agent. You hear it right? I'm free agent. Couture in 2008, and of course Nganu was pretty much the first of the modern era to slip away from them. But before the success the UFC achieved from 2005 onwards, which made them an incredibly powerful organization, there was of course the Dark Ages. And so in January of 2004, just a mere 16 months or so before the UFC finally got their legs underneath them with the Ultimate Fighter, they were running up an enormous amount of debt. It's
1: called Ultimate Fighting and it's a brutal spectacle, one that Washington lawmakers wanted to ban a few years ago.
0: I think in the next five years, we're we're gonna be as big as boxing or The WWF. Considering their own reports that say there were about 44 million in the hole by the time of The Ultimate Fighter, which cost them another 10 million to produce on their own, it's probably a decent bet to say they were about 30 million in the hole by January of 2004 when this happened, and they still had no path to profitability in sight. Which means when BJ Penn out of nowhere moved up from lightweight to welterweight and shockingly upset the kingpin of the division in Matt Hughes, Well, BJ's star had risen significantly. I mean, Matt Hughes was on a historic title streak by that time, and this was a complete blindsiding. So BJ, recognizing the situation, said, all right, I just want to get paid now and start shopping around to other organizations for the biggest prize. Of course, the UFC was like, "Uh, dude, you're under contract with us, though. But not really having the cash flow at the time, they just opted to strip him of the title instead as they weren't really interested in a costly legal battle. Ironically, BJ was upset that he got stripped and sued them over it. I know I'm the welterweight champion. Dana knows it. Matthews knows it, you know. Everybody else knows it. So they ended up having a legal battle no matter what. From his perspective, he just wanted to fight and get the biggest payday out there. So just like that, he was gone, went to K-1, and spanned four different divisions in the process. What a wild man BJ was. Still is. Number four. Dan Henderson. If you want to talk about somebody who's understood the value of themselves in this sport, it's hard to see anybody who played the game better than Dan Henderson. And it was true from pretty much day one in his career. Hoping to kind of prove a little bit as far as Greco-Roman wrestling goes and maybe make a little money in the process. He kind of was the tournament king back in the day, jumping from organization to organization, winning all of their tournament titles, as if being a Greco-Roman Olympic-level wrestler wasn't already enough.
1: First round match for Dan Henderson of the United States, another youngster for this USA squad, Jeff. He debuted
0: in the 1997 Brazil Open, winning that one-night tournament. He's he's healthy, healthy. Look at cranking that.
1: Cranking his neck. Look, he's got the choke on. He's got him down.
0: He's not... Oh, he didn't, he's out, he choked him out. Which then really caught the attention of the UFC where he won their one night tournament besting Carlos Newton. Then immediately left for rings, managing to take out Gilbert, Ivel, Big Nog, and Babalu Sabral. By the way, this was also all on the same night. Dude was just running through everyone. And fast forward a few years in Pride, and well, he was a dual weight world champion after famously KOing Vanderlei Silva to take his title at light heavyweight. Which, by the way, Henderson never defended because the UFC ended up buying Pride at this time. So there is already plenty to get him on this list with all that. But then after going to the UFC and earning a number one contender shot at Anderson Silva by landing what, in my opinion, is the best KO in UFC history. Again, this was a title eliminator. He had a guaranteed title shot and he just left. You know, it felt great to land that second shot, probably more than the first shot. Went to strike force where he ended up winning another title over Cavalcante, and from there just basically said, nope, not defending that took a legends fight with Fedor where he knocked him out at heavyweight and then was gone to the UFC again. In all of UFC and MMA history, I'm not sure anybody has played the famously limited MMA market better than this man. Number three, Randy Couture. So where do you go from some of the biggest deals that were ever done? Well, you go to the originator. So after shocking the world and upsetting the seemingly unbeatable young Vitor Belfort when everybody thought he was the next big thing, and then again upsetting Murray Smith, already at the tender age of 34. And just when you thought he was about to go on a historic title defense streak, he just left the UFC. Similar to the BJ Penn story, this was early on in the UFC days, but was even before Zoof about the organization. And the UFC was barely even able to fight in court to keep the organization running, much less keeping him bound to a contract. So he left the belt behind and went to Japan.
1: Right from the opening bell, I felt like I was a half a step you know half a step behind in that fight he came across hard trying to land big kicks you know which I dealt with I took him right down and then he uh, he surprised me with the amount of power he was able to generate from the mat kicking from his back
0: After a rough start there, he managed to get his bearings back and went to the UFC on a win streak again to pull another upset by taking out Kevin Randleman. And then he left again. At this point, I think it's likely he would have been gone for good given the state of the UFC, but that's when the billionaire Fertitta saved the bleeding organization and got them back on track. So in this run, he did actually have defenses and did not vacate the belt. And from then on, Couture wasn't really able to get away despite really trying back in 2008 and 2007.
1: I'm just another fighter and and I get no respect from the organization. I tendered my resignation after having a face-to-face meeting with Dana White and Lorenzo Fertitta where I laid all this out.
0: But yeah, he was definitely the first to leave the UFC with a title in hand after winning it way back in 1997. Number two, Conor McGregor. There is no more infamous example of somebody earning a belt and taking off than Conor McGregor, especially considering he did it twice within a year, and after the second time he basically moved heaven and earth to leave for boxing, which the UFC never does. We don't (laughs) co-promote. A few moments later. Do you think that's going to happen? I do. And what makes him a real exception to every other fighter on the list. You know, Bellator didn't want Alvarez to leave, same with Alistair, Lovato and all the rest. In this case, Connor was writing himself and his bosses the biggest single fight check they'd ever seen in their lives. He never defended either title and pretty much immediately left those divisions right after winning them. And yeah, the fact he got the UFC to agree to this boxing fight is just unheard of especially before that time, and I think he's probably opened the door for future attempts.
1: I will make that fight. I will make John Jones versus Tyson Fury in the octagon. The offer is out there.
0: And number one, George St. Pierre. I have to go with GSP at number one here because it's likely the nail in the coffin for him to say he's the goat in a lot of people's eyes. And of course, his record is scandal-free with no steroid or PD controversies anywhere in sight. Not to say this title win isn't an interesting one. Michael Bisbing is an absolute legend in his own right, but I don't think many people at all would have considered him the best fighter in the division by 2017 when these two fought.
1: Let's be honest, I would be favored in that fight.
0: Yoel was definitely the scariest while Whitaker was the tactician of that era. All credit to Bisping, don't get me wrong. He pulled a massive coup, taking out a cocky Luke Rockhold on short notice. But none of that really matters, does it? GSP wisely captured the title and won it impressively and then got out. He tried to do the same in setting up a true super fight with Habib at lightweight before he retired, but the UFC was not interested in him capturing another belt only to abruptly leave. They knew that if it would, I would only come back for maybe one fight.
1: But now to come back and, and, and he wants to fight at 155 for the title, you can't just come out and and handpick fights that you want for titles.
0: It was a really smart move on GSP's part, and as a result, he is now, as I said, the greatest ever in many people's minds. Don't get me wrong, plenty of people still believe that without the second belt, but it definitely cemented it, and what a way to retire. All right, guys, that was a ton of fun to go through. Keep in mind, for anybody wondering about any other champs I didn't mention, again, remember they have to have left without defending, and of course it had to be their choice in some way. The only exception was medical issues in the cases of Lovato and Boss. The point is they were not stripped. It wasn't like they did something dishonorable, you know? Anyhow, hope you guys enjoyed that one. Really appreciate everybody for tuning in. As always, a huge shout out to our channel champs and Hall of Famers. You guys really help us come up with these awesome ideas in our writers meetings and anybody else can join those. So consider signing up if that sounds remotely interesting to you or if you'd like to get some of the bonus content that we put out multiple times a week. But that's it for me, guys. Thanks so much for watching and I'll catch you next time. Peace.